It's, uh, it's great to see all of you. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Merry, can you say Merry Post Christmas? Is that a thing? Merry, Merry Post Christmas. It sounds pretty terrible. But Merry Day After Christmas. Merry Day After Christmas. Thank you, Vanessa. You're welcome. Um, I wanted to thank all of you um, for the mon monetary gift that our family received. Um, I know um, Corinne and Austin organized that, and thank you guys for, for doing that. Uh, one of the first questions that our family asked is, uh, one, one member of our family um, was, doesn't the church already pay you? <laughs> why, do, why, do they, why do they pay you extra? And what I appreciate about that is, uh, yes, the church does pay me, um, and this was above and beyond that. And so I just want to thank you guys for being a part of that. And also, I know there's people who aren't able to be here or who participated in putting that gift together, and I want to thank you guys for doing that. Our family has been so blessed by all of you. Um, and it is your generosity that's made this church possible and what we do possible. So thank you for that. Um, and in the lines of money, the money is something I think a lot about, and I'm really excited because I'm going to use all that time I've been thinking about it over the last, I don't know, probably at least 10 years thinking about and sometimes worrying about money. Um, I'm going to be doing a money series starting uh, not next week, but the week after. Okay, it's a topical series, and we're going to be talking about things like saving and investing, um, and discretionary spending um, and debt. And then probably my most interesting or, yeah, the topic I'm most interested in talking about as it relates to money is housing and how expensive it is to live here. And so I'm gonna be addressing those topics. And um, I got a question from one of our leaders who um, does not like topical series, and this will be a topical series. He said, are you gonna talk about Dave Ramsey? Okay, you're going to mention Dave Ramsey, and for those of you guys who aren't familiar, Dave Ramsey is like a personal finance guru, um, particularly to all kinds of people, but particularly to Christians, and he has this program called Financial Peace University, and I will talk about Dave Ramsey if you're interested, but he is not the end point. He will be the starting point of some of the things that we discuss um, through that series, and we will be looking at scripture and examining what the scripture says, because the Bible says a lot about money, and I think it's really important how we view money. Um, and I'm not just going to be talking about how to give money away or how to give money or that you should give money to the church. It would be much more than that. Um, because how we see money is also how we see God and how we see ourselves. So I'm excited about doing that with you, going through that with you guys. And then um, today what we're going to be doing is going back through the book of 2 Corinthians, or, um, the letter of 2 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in the beginning, and last week what we talked about was how we are motivated first by fear and then by love. And then, ultimately, when we see people and when we see ourselves, we do not view them through first birth, through the physical. We view them through the spiritual, through the lens of resurrection. We view them through the second birth. And as it talks about that, it closes at the, towards the end of the chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. And so we're going to pick up in verse 18. And verse 18 says, I'll read to the end of the chapter. It's like Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's our, that's our scripture reading. And the context for the book of 2 Corinthians is it's the letter to the Corinth church. It's the second letter that Paul's written. And in this letter, Paul and Timothy are defending their apostleship. And they're defending their apostleship in the face of these so-called, this is a, word, a term that Paul uses, super apostles, which he introduces uh, later on in chapter 11. And in light of those super apostles, he's writing a defense of his own credibility, his own legitimacy as an apostle. And also, really, throughout, throughout the theme of this book is the glory of God in suffering and weakness. So he's defending his apostleship, and he's also talking about suffering, and he's talking about weakness. And it's not just meant to give himself, again, credibility, but to defend himself against these super apostles who we don't have the other side of it. So we don't know exactly what the Corinth church was struggling with. But you can infer a couple things about these super apostles. That number one, they were critical of Paul and Timothy. So they uh, were attacking them. They also seemed to compete for the same group of followers. They were in competition for believers in the Corinthian church. And then lastly, that they in some way saw themselves as superior to Paul and Timothy in either terms of knowledge or speech, which again you can infer based on chapter 11. And Paul is headed that way throughout this letter. He's, he's going in that direction. And so as we get into this, as we get into this text that we're looking at in particular, where it talks about the ministry of reconciliation, the, con the immediate context is that one died for all and therefore all died. Jesus' death has meaning for every person on the planet. It was intended as a sacrifice for every person on this planet who has lived in the past and who lives today and who will live in the future. That's the meaning of Jesus' death and his resurrection. And so as followers of Jesus, what this means is when we believe in him, when we believe in Jesus, we also participate with Jesus in his death. We also participate with him in his resurrection. And so that we experience that all together. Okay? And we see, and we see that lens through, through, we see through the lens of seeing people in terms of second birth and not the first. And so one of the questions that have um, come up uh, last week is, does that, mean, does that mean we don't make any distinctions between followers of Jesus and those who don't? We still make distinctions. In fact, in the next chapter, it talks about not being in fellowship with darkness. It talks about not having fellowship with non-Christians. So there is a distinction in terms of whether we see someone as a follower of Jesus or not. Okay, there is a distinction. And yet we don't see purely in the lens of whether someone's, uh, in, in, in the words of a friend, a hell-bound sinner. We don't see them purely in terms of that lens. We see them in terms of redemptive hope. We see people in terms of like God is reconciling the world because that's what it says here in this section. And so in verse 18 it says, All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And that's my first point. That God has bridged a gap with each of us individually. Okay? God has bridged a gap for each of us individually. The second point is that there is a ministry that we are to bridge for others. 
And it's really just, that's, that's it. There's no three points today. Just one, we have been bridged. Two, we're meant to be a bridge for others to God. Okay, so when we talk about there being a gap, what does the Bible mean? Now, in these verses, you'll pick up on a couple words that I want to define. First, you'll see the word transgression, okay? In 19, it says, that is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Okay, actually, it's not trespasses, it's trespasses. Not counting their trespasses. And then in the last verse, 21, it says, for our sake, he made him who, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So there's two words that I want you to focus on to define. One is trespasses, and the second is sin. What is the idea behind those two words? And the rest of this book kind of gives us some definition, because one of the, some of the things he talks about in this letter are sexual immorality. He talks about defilement. He talks about obsession with power and popularity. He, just, he also discusses the desire for earthly comfort. And many of these areas, including an area like sex, are they're God-given things. They're, they're things that God has given us for our pleasure, for procreation, and yet, because of our fallen nature, we have abused. We have used in a way that hurts ourselves, it also hurts our relationship with God. It blocks us. And so we talk about the need for reconciliation, we talk about things that, the things that interfere with our ability to experience fellowship with God, relationship with God. And so let me give one specific example that relates to this idea of suffering. Um, a book that, where'd my wife go? Is she here? Is Judy here? She was here, okay. I think she went to pick up food. <laughs> a book that my wife introduced to me um, about a month ago is called Dreamland. And it's about the op opioid epidemic um, throughout this country. And it was written about five or six years ago that chronicles um, essentially about painkillers, right? Um, and they're spread throughout middle America. Actually, it focuses on an area where Judy grew up, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and we're near Columbus, and then Portsmouth, and then Chillicothe. Um, and it talks about uh, how pharmaceuticals, pharmaceutical companies um, introduced um, a painkiller, opio opioids, specifically Oxycontin, that uh, remedy pain. And the premise of that is a, a cultural shift within our society where pain became the fifth vital sign. In fact, some of, anyone who's maybe visited a hospital or seen a doctor, if you experience pain, they will ask you to rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, right? And the idea behind that rating is it's meant to be an objective measure of what pain is like. And yet it's never, it's by definition not objective because they're asking you to rate your pain. And in so rating your pain, you are also have an expectation that something should be done to get rid of it. And that's ultimately what's behind the, one of the things that's behind this epidemic is this expectation that you should not have to experience any pain. And I was just reading an article in The Atlantic about narcissism and our narcissistic culture and the whole idea of being focused on oneself. Because the more you're focused on oneself, the more it's easy to focus on one's pain and also how you should be delivered from it. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, what does that have to do with God? What does it have to do? Well, one of the problems is the more focused you are on yourself, by virtue of that, it's difficult, if not impossible, to focus on others. The more you're fixated 
on the removal of pain in your own life, it's, it's a never-ending cycle or, or spiral that goes down until you're focused. The only thing that you can focus on is eradicating pain. And you'll notice that um, the Bible actually never talks about eradicating pain. In fact, the Bible is almost um, masochistic in a way. Okay? I, I don't want to say that it is, but it, it almost is masochistic in a way where it, it actually, especially in this book, this letter that Paul's writing, it talks about suffering as something glorious. Okay, the Bible discusses suffering, even pain, and right at, in the next chapter, in chapter 6, Paul goes on to talk about affliction and hardship and hunger and toil and imprisonment. All of those things are painful, and he's bragging about them in a way to discuss how he is suffering on someone else's behalf. So let me say this. When you're a Christian, you actually see pain differently. And it's not about the eradication of pain. It's not about getting rid of it. It's not an expectation for it to go away. It's actually about seeing it in a way where it becomes something you use for others. It's because the greatest privilege is to suffer on behalf of others. And so for us, for us as a culture, the more we fixate on our own pain, that becomes an obstacle. It's part of the gap that needs to be bridged. And alongside pain, we have immediate gratification and popularity and a quest for fame. And all of those dull our senses to be in relationship. And the Bible talks about the consequences of that as death. And so when the Bible discusses, and when Paul is discussing this ministry of reconciliation, how God has reconciled us, what he said, what he's saying here is every obstacle that blocks you from experiencing God. Okay, all those different barriers God has removed. He has bridged. Okay, he's bridged them because he's not counted our transgressions, the things that block us. He's not counted those against us. And that is the idea of reconciliation, that you have been reconciled with God. You've been brought close to him by the death and resurrection by, Je by Jesus Christ. And this verse goes on, this passage goes on. And what it says in 19, as I keep reading, is that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And when Paul refers to the world, he's talking most likely about those who do not know Jesus, those who do not follow Jesus. He's not counting their trespasses against them. And then he's entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So if God has removed the barriers that we experience, okay, whether it's our fixation with pain, our fixation with ourselves, if God has removed that barrier, and he has, he has also welcomed us into the family business. So now your job, no matter who you are, whether you're a pastor or you work, you're, or whether you're a student or a software engineer, your job has now become a ministry of reconciliation. Okay, you are welcomed into the family business. And I got this term from a seminary professor who was talking about what it means to have this ministry of reconciliation. Um, going into your parents' uh, business is probably not looked highly upon in our culture. In fact, um, as I was graduating from college, one of the things that I wanted to do, I, I kind of had two paths that I was thinking about um, that were highly um, revered in, in the business school that I was in. One was becoming an investment banker in New York City, because it's glamorous and you make a lot of money and you get to live in New York. And the second was being a management consultant. Um, and management consultants are great because I think they also make a lot of money 
or I don't know if it was so much about the money, but you get to travel. You get paid to travel all over. And travel at that time was a really glamorous thing um, for young people. And so I was thinking about those two things, but I chose neither of them because um, one of my, my home church pastors asked me to come back. Come back home um, and to work with the next generation. And so instead, um, I got a job with a company that my dad worked for called IBM. <laughs> and it wasn't glamorous. In fact, I remember the first day I came to work, they had us uh, installing windows on computers. It was crazy. I was like, I went to college. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. But I recognized, and I, I recognized, and I was living with my parents at the time, and we actually carpooled uh, for, until my dad couldn't stand it. Um, we actually carpooled for, for a while. And we, we would, we, there was one point we actually were in the same meeting together, which was kind of fun. Um, and yeah, that was really weird. Uh, but I remember experiencing some shame and embarrassment that I was part of the same company as my dad. And we were working together, we're carpooling together. <laughs> it, felt, it felt really weird. And yet, throughout most of human history, and throughout most cultures, it's actually a privilege to do what your parents do, to be in the family business. In our culture, values choice. Everything's about personal choice and autonomy and being able to choose a different path from your parents. And, having, and there is a privilege in being able to do so. And yet, I think we dismiss the privilege in being chosen. God has chosen us for his family business. You've been given a ministry of reconciliation because that's your father's business. And it's a privilege to be part of that business. And so each of you, if you have been reconciled to God, you've also been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. Okay? And that message of reconciliation means that God is reconciling the world by forgiving the sins, the trespasses of all those around us. Okay? And that has incredible implications. Because how you see the greatest problem in the world will also tell you how you see its greatest solution. So for example, if you think pain is the greatest problem in this world, then the most important solution is to eradicate pain. But if you see sin and trespass and the obstacles, and, and when I say sin and trespass, I don't just mean actions, I mean uh, values and beliefs that interfere with our ability to experience God. Values and beliefs that interfere with our ability to experience God. If that is the greatest problem, if that obstacle, that barrier is the greatest problem, then Jesus Christ is going to be the greatest solution. And that is the message that we've been given and entrusted with. And from all of those things, from, all, from, from the, this message of reconciliation, all the other problems can be addressed. Because if you address the greatest problem, then all the others come with it. And so throughout the rest of this letter, what Paul discusses is how do you relate with one another? How do you relate to the outside world? How do you relate, how do you relate to authority? Because all other relationships come from how you relate with God. And so let me close this message by discussing some of those implications of what it means to have a ministry of reconciliation. Okay? Number one, it means you no longer regard yourself according to first birth. You don't regard yourself in terms of your own sin and transgression because they have no longer been counted against you. The second thing is you no longer count others' transgressions against each other and even against you. Now, one of the things that Christmas represents, and it's so great to see um, family members here, and uh, I have both sets of parents here, which is fantastic. And that's, I think that's the first time. That's the first time I've had that in the So really excited, and, and my sister-in-law too. Um, and so there's, there's some, it's neat to have family members 
And yet, we recognize that when you have family come together, there are tensions, and there's history, and there's baggage. And if you've been around long enough, you know that there are grudges within families. There's divisions, there's factions. Okay? I can see some people getting uncomfortable. It's good. It's good. There's some discomfort. We pain, this is, this is pain for good. <laughs> this is pain for good. And so if you're, if you're holding on to a grudge today against a family member or a relative because of a hurt that this person has caused you, then the ministry of reconciliation, I mean, it says there, it says here, be reconciled to God. It says, be reconciled to God. And who is he speaking to? I think he's primarily speaking to those who don't follow Jesus. He's primarily speaking to the world. But I think actually, secondarily, he's speaking to the church at Corinth. Be reconciled to God. Because he's actually not very complimentary to the believers in Corinth. He's actually quite harsh with them. Throughout this letter, he says, hey, the righteousness of God. What's the idea behind that? When you are forgiven of your sins, you don't go to zero. It's not innocence. Okay? You, don't, you don't start just with a blank slate. Jesus became sin in our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God. We are now perfectly righteous because of what, is, what God has done. And so for those of you who are wrestling with, that, with this idea of starting from scratch, okay, it's actually good news because you don't have to start from scratch because of what Jesus has done for us. You get to start from perfect, infinite righteousness. The righteousness of his son has been exchanged for you. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. If you're wrestling with a grudge today, recognize the righteousness of God has been exchanged for you. You have that today because of your faith in Jesus. Would you recognize that that's your ministry, that's your job today, to go out and minister, minister to others by reconciling them to God? And we do so by loving people, proclaiming the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for family and the family business. Thank you that there is an honor in following in our parents' footsteps. And that you are on a mission to reconcile the world to yourself. And on this mission, you have chosen companions. You have chosen us to join you. And we are not only the, the missionaries, but we are, the, uh, we are the, the target audience of the mission. Because we also get to be reconciled to you. And so, Lord, with this message that transforms our life, will we transform others' lives? And, Lord, with the grudges that we hold, would we surrender them? Because you have surrendered any claim on us. And, Lord, as we suffer in pain in surrendering those grudges, will we recognize it's a good pain. It's a pain that's suffering on behalf of another person and the pain that you demonstrated on the cross when you suffered for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.